The Electoral College has been in the news lately, but it isn't the only thing people are talking about when it comes to how we pick our next president. Before electors cast their ballot for president and vice president, political parties must pick their candidates. And in 2019, they use primary elections to do so. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. On today's episode, we are working through America's complicated relationship with primaries. What are primary elections? Why do they matter? Do primaries strengthen democratic accountability or do they polarize our politics? These are some of the questions we are going to tackle in today's episode. We'll also answer the question everybody's asking, just how many Democrats are currently running for president? I'm James Wallner, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute and lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a Senior Fellow in the Political Reform Program at New America. Welcome, guys. Hey. It's good to see you. Yeah. 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 Let's, all right, we can do this. How many Democrats right now are running for president? How well, many? It depends on uh, who counts as a Democrat. Yeah. Do you count Sanders? Um, does he count himself? Uh, he doesn't. Well, there you go. We're a bunch of trolls. About 20, right? Yeah. 20. Well, it depends, it depends on what running means. God, we're trolls. Um, Andrew Yang running? Um, Andrew Yang is running. Tim Ryan is saying he's going to run. But also it seems like there's this new trend where you make two announcements. You make an announcement that you're going to explore running, and then you make an announcement that you're going to run. So anyway, 20. 20 is my answer. Okay. So, but is this unique to the Democratic Party to have this many candidates? Weren't the Republicans in a similar uh, position and situation in 2016? The Democrats actually usually have fewer candidates than Republicans at the debates. I have a uh, paper with um, another political scientist, Seth Maskett, where we analyze content of debates, um, depending on how many people are are there. So I can tell you that with some confidence there's it usually goes the other way so lee what do you think about this like you had this terrific piece i I read it late last night it took me a couple days since it came out but it was a fabulous piece i wish i had uh, read it earlier where you say we should make more predictions about what happens in these things and does a crowded field make it harder to make predictions And, and also why do you think it's important that we make these predictions yeah i like predictions uh you know, I, th- I think I think we we are constantly struggling to make sense of of the world, right? I mean, we we don't yeah you know, we have theories, but uh, but but how do we know whether our theories are any good? Uh, oh, I know. Uh, you know. I know. Well, how? Mine are great. Oh, okay. Well, well, do you ever test them? <laughs> no. All right. Well, see that that's the problem. Everybody has great theories until they test them. They may not be uh, great if I test them. Well, that, that's that, that's that's precisely the problem. It's so. called confidence. Yes. Well, how about a confidence interval? God. Oh, wow. Oh, no. Oh. oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. We just went there. Um, oh, geez. No, so right. tell me. I mean, All right, Google, you know, you, you, can, you can look that up. Um, no, but this is an important point, I think. Yeah. Tell me more about this. Yeah, well, I, I, I think we, you know, everybody felt like they didn't know what was going on anymore after 2016. We had all these theories, and then they were wrong. But, you know, we need new theories. So the only way to, to develop new theories is to put them out there and test them. Uh, and the only way to test them is really to, to make predictions, I think. And then if we get them wrong, we learn. Uh, and and a, and a crowded field, yeah, I think it does make it harder to, to, to make predictions. I think this is a really important point because after 2016, it seems to me 
it's not necessarily that the world changed, but that what we thought was reality wasn't necessarily reality because a lot of people got things wrong. And I think a lot of the, the motivation or the impetus for this podcast is to think through things because as this disconnect widens between how we think about politics and what happens in politics on a regular basis, as that widens, I think it's more important, as you say, to return to these theories, to kind of question our assumptions, to dive into those assumptions, and then to try to make new predictions of, to challenge those assumptions and see what, how and where we need to change them. But uh, Julia, I mean, what do you think about this? Do you agree with Lee One on the importance of making theories? And do you think uh, O'Rourke, is he, is, is he your guy? Is he going to win? <laughs> I don't. I mean, so, he seems dreamy, but is that enough to carry okay. you across the finish line in a crowded field? Yeah, let me, let me, let me take this uh, apart a little bit. So I think on the one hand, um, one of the things I really liked about Lee's piece was that the way you broke down you know, how we evaluate whether a theory has been rejected by a particular outcome. So on the one hand, it might be this prediction failed, and so the theory is wrong. And on the other hand, it might be, well, this the theory needs some improvement, or this instance just wasn't that representative of broader cases. And it's hard to know in the moment, um, in a kind of this is water way, if, um, what kind of instance is in front of you. But I, I think that really the next, like, the follow-on to your piece would be, well, what are the implications of a given theory? And a prediction is a really blunt instrument of an implication of a theory. So if our theory, our kind of bigger picture theory, is that in a crowded field, a candidate with a lot of charisma is is going to win, right? Or that charisma really matters and in a candidate-centered primary system, and that would favor O'Rourke. But that's not the only implication of that theory, right? Like, it might be that that doesn't actually get him over the threshold, but we could also look at, are there ways we can measure the charisma of other candidates and compare? Are there ways we can, you know, we can think about who else might do well? So every theory has multiple implications, uh, you know, multiple kinds of predictions that it generates, not just one. And that's where, that's sort of the... Like if I were going to write a follow-on to your piece, that's that's what I would write. But I I do I want to highly second um, James's recommendation of reading Lee's piece, which is a really nice nicely laid out argument about why we need predictions. As far as Beto goes, you know I confess, Lee, as you know, I was one of the people who ratioed you um, <laughs> in that piece um, after that your tweet about Beto because I thought that your I thought your theoretical priors about his gender and race were wrong. I think that your hypothesis about his charisma is right. And and what we want to state those real quick for our listeners who haven't had an opportunity yet to read the read the piece. Well, well, I also initially thought that that him being a white male would help him because I think a lot of people think that 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 is the the sort of definition of electability. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think the political science literature supports that, but I think that's what a lot of people's priors are. That if you're going to get somebody who's electable, that person should be a white male. I see what you're saying, Lee. I also think, and this is relevant not just to my ratioing my dear friend here, but also um, to the kind of prediction story, which is that there's a way of thinking about politics that suggests that really like fundamental, the fundamentals are the most important thing and these things are kind of baked in. And there's a way of thinking about politics in which like events matter and rhetoric matters and messaging matters and the media matters. And all of us are members of, I guess, maybe kind of the niche media maybe not the most influential members of the media, but I think the way we talk about stuff like electability actually does matter. Other people will retweet and will repeat what those of us who are in this kind of niche, you know, academic media will say. And we, as well as people with 
broader following should be careful and critical about how we repeat some of that stuff. So that was the point that I was trying to make to you on, on Twitter, Lee. Um, yeah. So, so it's a, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, you're a, you're a kingmaker. Well, I, I mean, how can you be both a, a critic and yet your, your criticism and your analysis shapes, shapes the world. It's like, it's like this like quantum, you know, mechanics, Heisenberg uncertainty principle of, of, of political commentary. It's just, yeah. it's called life. Oh, man. It's the way it works. Man. That no, is well, some serious depth. No, I, I think this is an important point because our perception of reality, I think, oftentimes does shape what we think is possible. And that leads, especially when people see high stakes in elections, to back people who they think they may, they, that may win. I think, that's, I think that's a fair point. But we talk about all these things matter um, in terms of how we understand primaries. But why do, Julia, why do primaries matter? Why do primary elections matter? Why are they so important? Or are they important? So, I mean, there's a couple schools of thought about this, um, and people are – people in our, our – I'm just going to keep using this phrase niche media because I like it um, – in academia and, and academically influenced media, I think, are, are pretty on the fence about these two schools of thought. So there's one school of thought that's kind of, you know, primaries – the introduction of widespread presidential primaries has really changed the game. Voters don't have to respond to party elite preferences, and that this can be quite a wild card. On the other hand, there's this argument which really, you know, took a beating in 2016 that primaries are less important than the elite endorsement primary that goes on beforehand. And we saw that bear out pretty well in the Democratic race in 2016 where Hillary Clinton became the favorite and kind of cleared out the field of other mainstream Democrats, I also, I also think we saw pushback against that on the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. Obviously, on the Republican side, I think we can all agree primaries, you know, primaries really mattered. And now I think the other thing that we're seeing and the other important implication of primaries is that they tend to take place in a handful of locations and states. So they really influence how candidates behave at this early stage. And they're, you know, they're setting up apartments in Iowa and New Hampshire um, lovely places. Lovely places. Lovely places, I've been told. Yeah, I was just in New Hampshire. Lovely place, but— She's running. You know, that's right. So, so I, it's going to be a yeah. niche candidacy. I already announced but, my candidacy in the 538 chat a couple weeks oh, ago. Oh, well, it'll be great for your book sales. You know, this is your second announcement, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to roll out a video later. Lee, when it comes to primaries, crowded or not, does the nature of the primary race itself impact the general election? And even beyond that, does it shape how the victorious candidate actually governs or, or attempts to govern? I mean, do these things have importance beyond just the actual primary contest? Well, I, I mean, I think it's changed, the t particularly in the last uh, few cycles, I think it's changed the type of candidate who, who, who comes out in the sense that, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton notwithstanding, I mean, what, what you've seen with Trump and Obama before that are the candidates who, who have this sort of charisma and they're not, they don't really have a long record uh, because a long record gets beaten up in the primaries. You know, everybody wants a fresh face. And that's what's, uh, I think, powering Beto and to, to now, now Pete Buttigieg too, right? So, so you get candidates now who I think are not, you know, in the past when the parties controlled it, you got candidates who were, who were party stalwarts, who had built reputations, who had built relationships. Now you get people who, are, who just have a much more direct connection with the voter. And that, that creates, I think, a different kind of president. But is that, is that a function of 
primaries themselves are a function of the time. You know, Steve Skoranek has written this this great book about, about you know political time and, and the politics that, that presidents make, and and people have praised it and have criticized it. But one of the things he says is that sometimes in our politics you have outsiders who come in and shake things up because the people or the coalitions that exist uh, are incapable of addressing the problems that that they want to address, right? And so you have presidents like Andrew Jackson or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln or FDR, right? You have presidents like Reagan, right? Maybe Trump. I don't know. You have these presidents who come in and completely um, kind of do away with what came before, or at least reframe the narrative on which or in which our uh, our politics is conducted. And in that way, yes, charisma may matter a lot in those instances, but it may not matter in other instances, right? It may, the kind of candidates like an Obama or a Trump may not matter at other times and other cycles of American political time. I don't know, Julia. What yeah. Do you think? I mean, so I, to Promote something I wrote last week. I wrote something on Mistress of Faction about Reconstruction, these new new eras of uh, of politics. People like Jackson, Lincoln, Reagan, FDR, and what's going on in the Democratic field. I didn't really, so I didn't really wrestle with the question of experience. I did think about it a bit. In that approach, in this these political time cycles, the main kind of predictor is it's usually somebody who's the outsiders come in when the cycle is sort of nearing its end. Um, so that's where you get the Trump, you know, Jimmy Carter, Franklin Pierce, who came back from um, retirement and had been kind of a re- uh, Democratic backbencher in the 1850s. So you get these people who are really removed from the party, the elite party mainstream at that point in time. Um, the pattern is less obvious at other at other points, but I do think that given this impetus for a break with the um, with the past, that does that advantages certain kinds of candidates in this cycle, and particularly candidates like Beto and, and Buttigieg. I think there's some tension there, and with the rest of the Democratic Party coalition. And so, if you if you want to read about that, uh, my piece is up on Mistress of Faction. Wonderful, uh, well, Lee. Thinking about the past, right, which is one of my favorite subjects. You know, what happened? Yes. Why are we here? History. What are we doing? Um, and without going all the way back to Herodotus, a few. Did we always use primaries? Right. I mean, w- was there a primary election where 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 George Washington or Johnny Adams were selected? I mean, when when did the country start, or when did the party start using primaries, and why? Well, uh, we started using primaries for for congressional elections back at, in, the, in the Progressive Era because you know everybody, a bunch of reformers thought that the the parties they used to have these conventions and it was all it was all corrupt and so it became this great new idea that we're going to have we're going to give politics back to the people and take it away from the parties um, that, that that great misbegotten Progressive Era in which you know it was going to be all about independent judgment and. And parties were terrible, and you know, of course, you know, that was that was uh, that was a, a failed experiment. Uh, but we got primaries for for uh, for for congressional elections, and then in, in for president. Uh, I mean, you still had the party conventions, but you know, candidates would run in these sort of beauty pageant elections in the states to kind of prove that they had a connection with the voter. And then in 1968, it all blew up. A lot of things. Yeah, in the yeah. 60s. Chicago, man, that was a rough time. Um, right? But it's I mean, amazing, and this is for another discussion, but I just want to emphasize this. Think about the explosive period of lawmaking that happened in the 60s and 70s in this country and juxtapose that to the conflict that was surrounding it. And this idea today that we can't do anything if anybody remotely disagrees, is it's, it's laughable. It well, sounds, well the, the 60s, the, the conflict's 
cut across the parties, supposed to be between the parties. Well, and I would submit to you that the conflict today also cuts across the parties. But again, I think this is, and maybe we can get into this. Well, that's in, another topic. In, in a little bit, because I do think it manifests itself in, in primaries. But I mean, Julia, what do you think about this as you look back? I mean, why did the parties embrace primaries? It sounds like they were perhaps forced to embrace primaries as a, as a mechanism, or is there some good in it for them? I mean, when did it all kind of go off the rails, or did it go off the rails? These are all good questions. They don't have straightforward answers. There's a couple schools of thought about the embrace of primaries. There's well, let's, one, should we finish up the 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 '68 everything blew up and oh, then and then yeah. the McGovern Fraser Commission? Yeah, why don't you why don't you do the McGovern Fraser right, Commission right. and then so I'll then, do that. Then then after you know after the disastrous convention of '68 in which Humphrey was the party favorite and then there were all these protests. Eventually, the party said, "Ah, oh, this process looks terrible." So you know, and there were there was all these activists in the party who wanted to participate more. So the party embraced binding public primaries. And uh, then McGovern uh, became the, the nominee in 72, and, and that was a tremendous landslide loss. And then Jimmy Carter, who was a relative political unknown, won the primary in 76, and a bunch of political scientists said, oh, this whole process has gone haywire and it's terrible. And then, then the party elites sort of swung back, and, and uh, now, we're, now we're at where we are today. Yeah. What, what did I leave out? Um, nothing. That right, was, you right. left the banks out. Yes, well. The banks. Well, Somebody somebody has to pay for these campaigns. And Ronald, Ronald Reagan, um, who's also very successful at taking advantage of this new system. Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's two schools of thought on, on the whole adoption of the primary. One is this kind of corruption, anti-bossism. Anti-bossism is one of my favorite words. Um, the idea that party bosses are— You're not the boss of me. Uh, <laughs> there's only one boss I listen to. That's, and that's right. Springsteen. That's correct. So, yeah, so there's that kind of reform narrative, and then there's— there's an argument to be made about, you know, there are, there are ways in which if you're a powerful person who understands the lay of the political land, you see this new institutional proposal and you kind of have a sense of how you can, um, you know, how you can exploit this for your own political gain. And you kind of see that if we can veer into the first presidential primary briefly in 1912, it's not an accident that the first the first candidate to really take that that bull by the horns um, is Theodore Roosevelt who thought that he could do well in the handful of primaries that were being held that year, and he was right. What was what was different is the party still had the capacity to, to override that and nominate William Howard Taft. So, you know, I think there's that argument, too. There's, there's always concentrated, powerful interests that can take advantage of an institutional reform, and I think that's, you know, that's one way we could interpret both, both the inception of primaries and their subsequent use. So... Uh, Lee, you mentioned briefly, I think, this you know, in the 60s and, and the parties were divided. And I think it makes sense that primaries become more contentious. And, and even with, with uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Taft, I mean, the party was divided, right, uh, at the time. And so primaries are going to become more contentious as the parties are – they can't agree on anything, right? At least that's that's kind of one way to think about it. And you see this in particular in Congress. And, and one of the things that I harp on a lot is that, that our parties are a lot more divided than we think. Uh, if you take any of the major issues right now that, that, that divide the American people that the, about which the American people are concerned, like immigration, health care, right? These are issues that Congress doesn't act on and, and tries to go out of its way to not act on them, right? And it seems to me that 
it makes sense in this environment that primaries would be um, would be more front and center in our politics. And I think you see this in Congress. And I mean, they're not only just presidential primaries, they're congressional primaries. But what are you, I mean, Julia, what are you thinking about when you look at Congress over the past couple of years, say going back to 2010, and the kind of the, I don't want to say explosion, but the growth of uh, primary challengers. And I think members today are, they fear it, whether or not it's legitimate or not. They fear this idea of primary challenges, and we think when we look at them, oh, well, that's why, they, that's why they're behaving this way because they don't want to get a primary. I mean, what do you think about that? So, I mean, I think that's sort of the conventional wisdom. I think people who've really studied this deeply have some different, different perspectives. There's a scholar named uh, Rob Boatwright who's written a lot about this, and I think those perspectives are a little bit more nuanced than what we typically see, which is like the Tea Party primaries people, and then they move to the right. Or now we're kind of sort of seeing that emerge on the left. So part of me is, from a normative perspective, thinks that it's not necessarily totally a bad thing for members of Congress to be responsive to their constituents, but it is it is complicated. Like, I'm kind of trying to be even-handed here, um, but I don't think don't, it's— an, Don't be even-handed. Okay, fair. I don't think it's enhanced legislative productivity, obviously. Is that because of something intrinsic to the primary? Or is it because the party's divided? Yeah. Or are those two the same thing? And there's just a different way of saying it, right? So, because I think we gloss over the divided part and we say, oh, well, it's the primary's fault. If we didn't have primaries, it'd all be fine. But then, but the party's still divided, right? I don't, I mean. It depends, right? I mean, it, we kind of touched on this in our last episode where there's an argument that the institutions are doing the work. And there's an argument that the kind of the politics and the problem is doing the work and the institutions are just filtering it in one way or another. And I think that's that's kind of the case here. I'm not totally convinced that the parties are divided in any meaningful way. And this is related to the book project I'm working on right now. Parties used to be really divided, right? They used to be deeply divided internally on major issues of the day. Now they're divided. I mean, certainly there's degrees. There's more and less moderate people within parties. There's issue differences. um, But it's much less severe than it was. I think some people in the Congress literature have emphasized a stylistic difference. So you can have two members of Congress who are very conservative. One of them is interested in legislating, and one of them is interested in bombast, right? One of them is interested in rhetoric and in having fights. And primaries facilitate that, but it's not obvious to me that primaries are the root cause. What do you think about that, Lee? Well, you look concerned. I am concerned. I'm concerned about our democracy. Um, that's, that's why we're here, right? Uh, right, I mean... It's a but, republic or a democratic republic. Oh, democratic. for fuck's sake. Well, well, like whatever, <laughs> whatever, semantics, semantics. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I mean, there are divisions within the parties, uh, for sure. I think the Republican Party is right now much more divided than the Democratic Party. But, uh, you know, primaries are the one place where there's a, there's a real opportunity for intra-party democracy, I think, um, where the factions can actually fight it out. You know, the, the argument for primaries is that, if, you know, where, where, do, where do dissenting voices go? Either they take over a major party or, or they don't. And, you know, I think, I think that actually, the, I mean, one, one of the reasons that, uh, why we have a two, there are many reasons why we have a two-party system, but I actually think the primary system contributes to it because if you're a dissenting voice, you know, you've got to take over one of the two major parties. And because the primary system is relatively open, 
you know, your your incentive is to to fight it within the party rather than start a new party. I mean, look at Donald Trump, right? You know, he ran as a third party candidate in 2000. He got nowhere, said, well, you know, if I want to have influence, I got to work through a major party. Then he took over the Republican Party by becoming uh, the president. Yeah. So, I mean, there is there is much more diversity of opinion in this country than the two parties can represent. And so primaries are the place where where the parties can fight it. I mean, I, I, I mean, if I were to redesign institutions, I'd get rid of primaries and just have a straight-up multi-party democracy. But, you know. Right. We know. We know. We know. We know. We all know. We're going to talk about it. Don't worry. All right. Good. Um, But, I mean, this is is it, really, right? I mean, this is the rub. At the end of the day, primaries either strengthen democratic accountability, right? They they allow people uh, a way to, to involve themselves in the process, make it easier for them, right? Parties, in theory, at least, solve problems for their members, whether they be politicians in Congress, members in Congress, or voters in the electorate. Or they could also – primaries could also be seen as fueling polarization in our politics and making it more dysfunctional overall. And those two things could be happening at the same time. I'm not sure I necessarily agree on the polarization side, but but I do concede that those two things can happen at the same time. And, and there are pluses and minuses in everything, right? And I think trying to untease these two things – I mean, what do you think about this, Julie? It seems to me that if you're a voter and you live in a state like Alabama or – Mississippi, right, or any other or any other kind of solid state. If you don't vote in the primary, then what are you doing? Just you know, hang it up, right? What like it doesn't? You kind of are almost disenfranchised, if you will, because your vote it literally it doesn't matter at that point. And, and the place to to really have an impact is in the primary. And if you take away primaries, are you taking away the ability of the people to shape the candidates they want? And while that may work in the short term, in the long term, does that is that a way to have a sustainable kind of democratic system? Yeah. So. Thinking about responsiveness and accountability in a, in, through the lens of what do votes mean gets very complicated very quickly, partly because, it's as we talked about last time, it's not a great standard to impose of what does your vote mean. Everyone's individual vote has very little impact. It Obviously, it's more satisfying to vote if you have meaningful choices. And that's where I think what you're describing, where if you live in a state where there's not a lot of party competition, then the out party doesn't have an incentive to run a really, you know, often to run what we would call a quality candidate or more, more quality candidates in, in a primary to vote for. And that's a more satisfying choice to make. But, you know, voting can be a bunch of things, right? It can be it can be expressive, which is a lot of what we're talking about here. You've got you've gone to the polls and registered your preference for a particular approach. But the part that I worry about as far as the, the ways in which making democracy more diffuse, right, where it's where it's really in the hands of voters and therefore in the hands of various media outlets and media, I'm trying to think of a, what word do I want, like social media, right, media imagery, media messaging. What happens there is that in order for democracy to really be responsive, it doesn't just need to be open to voters, but there need to be levers, right? Once the voters have empowered someone, that person needs to be able to do something. And I think that's a lot of, this is sort of a tangent, but I think that's kind of a lot of what we've seen in both presidential and congressional elections in the last 25 years, is that you have a lot of turnover, right? Congress has changed control much more frequently than it used to because people are angry. And so then they vote in a new Congress and then nothing happens. And same thing with the presidency. The presidency has been very thermostatic in that regard. And yet it seems like people aren't getting you know, satisfaction with institutions when democracy is not improving, concrete problems are not getting solved. And some of that is that you've removed the leverage that elite actors have over each other. I want to take issue with this slightly, though, sure. because it seems to me that it's not that's not a function of 
primaries. And, and I don't distinguish between messaging and legislating. I mean, sometimes you message to legislate, right? And, and you can't win on or even get half a loaf um, the first go round. And so you have to kind of message and you have to build a campaign on the outside. You know, the, the 1950s pluralist scholars, people like Bertram Gross, they talk about the legislative struggle. They talk about how you pass bills by having an, an outside campaign and an inside campaign. And you have to have both. And it seems to me that why we don't see anything happening on the inside of these institutions these days, especially Congress, isn't necessarily primaries. It's because they don't they don't do things on the inside of Congress anymore. They look at elections. Elections decide policy. And they don't necessarily try to, to then come in and haggle and, and do all this other stuff in between, right? And so you can use a primary threat to drive and get things done and, and to try to put things on the agenda. You can, that's, it's, a, it's a tool to help facilitate action and to stop action. And I think what's remarkable is that the members don't use them. They just complain about them. And the tool itself, it seems to me, is, is kind of neutral. You can use it in many different ways. I, I see what you're saying. And I think, I think the crux of our disagreement is on the nature of messaging and not necessarily the relationship between messaging and governing. I agree with you about that in general. But What's happened is that the messaging that goes on facilitates this kind of angry, nihilistic style of politics, an anti-compromise style of politics, and that that's where there's sort of disconnect between politics and policy, once again, to use some Steve Skoranek language. That's, I think, where the problem is, is that, as you said, nothing is happening on the inside because elections are driving things. If primaries are really the locus of competition and the locus of, of the messaging, then that doesn't really, that doesn't lend itself to internal power struggles and it doesn't lend itself to cross-party interaction. Well, and Lee's got an agitated look on his face, oh, but Lee's real gonna, quick, Lee's I want to I I agitate it. it even more and just say All that, right. you know, I know a lot of kooky people across the spectrum on the left and the right. And, and it seems to me that even the most passionate people that we would call, you know, the most polarized people, none of them, it seems, want their or expect their member to have kind of dictatorial control over the government. And, and so the question becomes, if this is a phenomenon that is fueling polarization, either at the presidential level or even at the congressional level, and probably more so there, the question is, how do you address it? And it seems to me that the way to, to mollify concerns on the left and the right is to show them the limits of reality, right? To have a process that unfolds. Let them come into it. Let them try to get more than they otherwise can. And then when they come face to face with the constraints imposed by reality, guess what? They do what every other human being does and they compromise. Maybe a few on either side don't, but the vast majority of people, I think, do ultimately settle. And it's the, the process, because it's afraid of primaries, closes itself and doesn't let people see what's happening. And then in the end, they have a compromise and they say, this is the best we could do. Take my word for it. And they're like, well, we don't believe you. I don't know. What do you think, Lee? So, so what you're saying is just take the damn votes. Yeah, just have votes. Yeah, Let right. it all go. Yeah, but and then and then you get primaried because you you took some vote that you you know wasn't you know wasn't the vote that 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 some some other faction wanted you to take. I mean, that's everybody's afraid of taking taking votes in Congress, right? I mean, that's that's the problem. But what's the I mean, is the answer to to limit or the primaries? I mean, let's I mean, as we talk about primaries and why they're problematic or why they're not problematic, the costs and the benefits of them. I mean, how do we solve this problem? I mean, how do we reform primaries? How do we what's the answer? I mean, you mentioned earlier getting rid of primaries. Maybe we get rid of votes. I don't you know, I mean, it'd be a lot easier if we just had a ruler, right? Yeah, just just no votes. I mean, why don't we just have a ruler that just decides what we're going to do and govern? I mean, it's a messy process, right? an answer to that that's not very satisfying, which is that these are the kinds of problems, broadly speaking, that parties were invented to 
fix, right? It, primarily in that case, it was, um, pun intended, was to, to deal with the collective action problem of nominating. And now we have other collective action problems. But ultimately, we need an institutional innovation to solve this. Is a, it's a collective action problem, right? There's a collective good that, as you said, and I think this is right, most people would rather get something than nothing. But individually, the incentives of members of Congress don't go that way. That, I think, is really the, the crux of the issue. But what's interesting is that, and I agree with that, but what's interesting is that right now in American politics, it seems to me that no one's happy. No one. Everybody's frustrated. Everybody's grumbling. That's a, that's a rare feat in and of itself. And you saw this when Congress changes how it operates, when the presidency changes because of these, the, maybe they're because more people are involved in the process because of the time in history, because they have primaries now, because of technology. But when more people get involved in the process, things typically change in one direction or another, right? And it leads to more kind of definitive outcomes. And what's remarkable now is that's not happening. And, and so, yes, the people in Congress or the president may not behave differently. But why aren't the people behaving differently? Why aren't they? Because primaries, I get why parties don't like them. You can't, you, you can't really play an overt role in a primary, right, without upsetting one side or the other. I mean, we've seen McConnell do this a little bit during with certain high-profile primaries, but it's a really hard thing to do um, without really upsetting and damaging the party coalition. So, but why don't the people themselves get more involved? And in, 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 are we heading there? Are which, we right? which people? Um, all, I, I, the people. I, I, all the people. All the people. All the people. No, no. Okay. So, so you, you know, everybody's upset. Nobody feels like they're winning, right? I mean, and 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 that's you know, there are surveys that show that even the sides that are in power feel like they're losing. Now, why do they feel like they're losing? I mean, part of it is you've got political leaders on both sides saying, you know. Our side is losing. Our side is under threat. You know, all these fundraising emails, you know, democracy is dying. Uh, you know, if Democrats take back power, if Republicans take back power, everything's everything's terrible, right? I mean, that's it's the it's the threat. It's the fear that motivates action. They say and, we're winning and losing at the same winning time. Winning and losing. And, and part of that is because everybody's, you know, it, it's all oriented towards winning the next election, right, or keeping control. And, you know, to me, this, this gets to the fundamental mismatch between our majoritarian politics and our anti-majoritarian political institutions. And primaries, I, I do think, make that worse because then what you have is you're, you're vulnerable to the challenger who says, Walner is not fighting hard enough for true conservative values. But that's that's the rhetoric that both parties have been putting out is is they have to fight harder, right? Well, and, you know, this and, is a, this. And sorry to interrupt, but it seems to me this is fascinating because in thinking about parties and thinking about coalitions that shift prior to the Civil War. Slavery divided. I think we've talked about this before. Slavery divided both parties, and they did their best not to talk about it. And whenever it came up on the agenda, they got rid of it as quickly as possible. And they did these unsatisfying compromises on all sides, right? And 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 they never solved the issue, and it couldn't go away, and rightly so, right? And so eventually, what happens? You get the Civil War. Today, immigration, I think, divides both parties. But instead of avoiding it, instead of not talking about it, they literally can't stop talking about it. Healthcare, they cannot stop. I guess now Republicans are finally kind of coming to the conclusion that they, they don't want to talk about healthcare because they're divided over it with uh, the president calling on the party to be the party of healthcare and McConnell saying, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Um, but that's, that's like the dumbest thing. If you don't agree on something and you're doing your best to not act on it, then why on earth would you constantly talk about it, but if not just to mobilize voters in elections? And so I think that reinforces the point. These people aren't thinking about actually like legislating or governing or all the things that happen in between elections. It's just elections. That's all there is. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm going to promote something else I wrote, which is over the summer. So it's a little bit dated in some ways, but I wrote about this after the abolish ICE slogan 
kind of took off. So this really this that was a great piece. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, this I think really reveals that um, I'm expressing my great appreciation, not agreeing that my piece was great. It was what it was, but. The messaging is, I think the messaging did unify enough people in the Democratic Party and divides people in the Republicans, so it's strategic. But then you need some kind of party mechanism to make priorities about what that's going to look like. Or at least members to act, right? I mean, it kind of sorts itself out as well. It may be messier as long as people are acting in, in between elections um, to kind of deliver on these these messages and these slogans and compromises emerges. But, so, but I mean, but, but let's just stay on this abolish ICE thing. I mean, because that's that pulls the Democrats to a, to a far left position. And then, you know, they promise that. And then do you think they can pass that? Right. No. Almost certainly not. And no. then then you have disappointed voters on the left who say, oh, you you know, you made this big promise and now you can't get it through. But if and they see it fail, if they see them try and fall short. Oh, so you want them to just take the take the votes and then lose. But no, but I think it's different. You can't win all at once. It's a process. It takes time. It, you can't just go from point A to point like C oh, without— so now, now you're impugning our whole instant gratification culture. <laughs> but, I mean, so there are a lot of problems, right? I mean, and, and I think in, in trying to— But I want change now. <laughs> in trying to wrap up here, I mean, we have a lot of problems with with our politics. And there's a lot of benefits. And I think a big problem is that many of the things that that help solve certain problems create other problems. And we don't think about them in those terms. We, as I've said before, we only think in terms of progress. We don't think in terms of forms of government. We don't think in terms of the process of government. Um, but how are you going to fix it? I mean, Lee, how, how do you fix, how are you going to fix this? If you were in charge, if you were king for a day, what would you do? Proportional representation. Get rid of primaries. Have have a multi-party democracy. How did I know you were going to yeah, say that? Yeah, that's, that's my, that's my solution. I mean, look, it's not a silver bullet, but I think it would make a better democracy. How so? Well, because I think you get the full expression of of the diversity of opinion in the country, and then you have multi-dimensional fights and you have fluid coalitions, just as James Madison intended. Wonderful. Julia, do you agree with that? So I don't fundamentally disagree with Lee, but I'm not as optimistic about the about the potential for multi-party democracy to solve what ails us. I think in this particular vein, the reform that I would make would be that you would have party members who are both empowered and accountable. So you could go into the Democratic convention with, this is, I'm riffing off a number of other party politics scholars here. Um, you could go into the party convention kind of knowing what your constituents' preferences were from your state or your district. You know, my district is leans left, leans right, what have you. Um, and you got to know, you know, what the universe of candidates are. And you can choose a presidential candidate or a congressional candidate who you think reflects those preferences in in concert with other delegates and that that wouldn't necessarily be a totally open voter-driven process, but it would be a process that takes those preferences into account and that you would you would know, right, who your, who your local person was and what they had done and you could hold them accountable if they screwed it up. Again, I'm, I'm kind of riffing off a lot of other party politics scholars here, Hans Noel and some work that Sam Rosenfeld and Danny Schlossman are doing on hollow parties. If parties are more present in our lives, I think that improves representation at both a local and national level. Well, parties will be more present when, when there's more competitive elections between. But I think what we can all agree on is that competition is good, right? And I think parties solve problems for their members and for voters. They they do perform a valuable yes. service. They help make it work. I think what's interesting is, and if you look at a, a, a range of figures from George Washington to, to James Madison to John C. Calhoun to Karl Marx to Hannah Arendt, right? the idea of one bureaucratic party is very dangerous, right? And, and so I think you have to figure out how do you 
drive competition? How do you facilitate voters' involvement in the process while also kind of making sure that it's more managed, right? And, and, and I think institutions solve, that's, that's the role that institutions ultimately are going to play. And I think that's the way we need to think about it. But I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer. I mean, if you go too far in one direction, you get something bad. You get some one-party monolithic state that is not really a democratic republic. And if you go too far in the other direction, then, you know, it's, people aren't really doing anything. And it becomes very difficult to make collective decisions in the public sphere without these institutions. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, any closing thoughts, any words of wisdom for our, for our listeners here? I think hopefully we've left them with more questions, more confused and more hopeful. That's my motto. I like that, more confused and more hopeful. I think you can be successful in a range of different arrangements as far as, you know, primaries and versus smoke-filled rooms, but there need to be a set of kind of clear institutions that people more or less agree are, are legitimate uh, legitimate rules and legitimate rule enforcers. And those solutions may change. I mean, this just chimed in and sorry to interrupt, but it seems to me that there's no one way of doing things. And, and it can change over time. And there may be times where it needs to be more open, right? And more, and people should see more of what's happening. And there may be other times where it, it's okay that it's not in the same way or in the same vein. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I try hard to resist um, well, going too far and saying, well, it's always got to be this way, but I don't know. Well, democracy is a, a, uh, a thermostat that's very slow to respond. Fair. Well, fair enough. Thanks for listening to this episode of Politics in Question. To learn more, you can find our Twitter accounts and website links in the show notes. Anything we've cited or referred to will be there as well. Politics in Question is a joint product of New America and the R Street Institute. Elena Soros is our producer and a research associate in the political reform program at New America. Griffin Tanner is our audio engineer, and Jason Stewart is our production manager. Thanks for listening.